0: Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you that we can be here to hear from your word and to worship you and to acknowledge your victory. And, uh, and we thank you that your word empowers us and you share your victory with us. We pray that uh, you would open our eyes um, to learn things today. We pray that your spirit would convict us and that uh, you would bless this message. We thank you for your grace and amen. amen. All right, so today we're continuing our series on pride and humility. We're doing uh, part three. So we'll start with review. So last time, uh, the first thing we talked about is how pride is related to condemnation. And, um, and there were six ways in which pride is connected to condemnation that we went over. And I wanna briefly look at those again. Uh, the first one is that condemnation often leads to insecurity and insecurity leads to pride. When a person, you know, when you're struggling with insecurity, that leads to more desire for others to think well of you or for you to think well of yourself. And it almost always leads to an inordinate amount of desire because that's just what it does. Um, So that's one way that condemnation and pride are connected. Number two, pride generates falsely high expectations, which leads to condemnation. You know, if if you think like I'm just the best thing ever, You'll expect yourself to perform like the best thing ever and then you won't and then you'll feel condemned about it so that's another way in which pride leads to condemnation uh, number three pride makes you think of yourself apart from grace which leads to condemnation so we looked at an example of this peter when jesus was washing the disciples feet the disciples feet peter didn't want to have his feet washed Peter was proud, and his pride made him want to not accept the grace of God. The pride of his heart wanted to tell him, you don't need the grace of God, you're all that. You don't need this. This is demeaning, this is shameful. Jesus isn't going to wash your feet. And Jesus told him, if I don't wash your feet, you have no place with me. If we can't accept God's grace, we have no place with him. The gospel is his grace. If we don't accept it, we're not with him. Number four, condemnation comes from focusing on yourself instead of focusing on God or others. And pride makes you focus on yourself instead of focusing on God. If you were to focus on God, you would see his grace. But if you focus on yourself, you see your sinfulness. And even focusing on others helps avoid condemnation because... um, you know, if in your Christian walk, all you do is think about how I can grow, and, um, or you think about how you can grow, you'll constantly think about how much you're not growing like you wish you would. But if you focus on serving others and helping them, then you will be growing, and you won't be thinking about yourself as much. So that's, that was number four. Number five. Um, nope, that was... Number six, if you refuse to hear and believe what God says about you, that's the highest form of pride there is. And we took a clear look at some verses from Romans 8 that show God does not condemn you. So if you're constantly condemning yourself, we looked particularly at a verse in Romans 8 that said um, God is the one who justifies who can condemn. You know, if you are condemning yourself, but you've been justified by God, you're denying what God says about you. Uh, after that, we went into something we talked about the week before, defining an appropriate amount to care, because it's not wrong to care about your own honor to some degree or what others think of you but it's wrong to care too much so we had to define an appropriate amount to care Uh, within that another thing we looked at is how pride and humility are very relational if a person cares about themselves very little it might be easy to think well I'm humble I don't um, you know I just think so little of me that I don't even care about me But if a person thinks really little of themselves and cares very little, and they care about others even less, then they're pride by the fact that they value themselves more than they value others. Pride and humility are very relational. And then uh, the last thing we did last week is we started area number one of eight areas we need to see accurately. And that is most of what we'll be getting into today. So if you missed any of last week's message, please go re-listen to it or listen to it on our website. I love coffee. (laughs) All right, so let's start with, let's get into it. Areas we need to see accurately. So I've got a list of eight areas. Uh, Not only will they be on the PowerPoint, we're gonna talk about them but you have a handout in your bulletin that will have them listed. So I think this list is pretty useful because it's basically a roadmap map of like how to think of yourself in a way that's humble and in a way that's accurate. Because there's some areas that are more important than others. So if I like think accurately about what color my hair is and what color my eyes are and I know how to spell my last name, that's good and all. But I could still be quite proud. But if a person thinks accurately in these areas, these are key areas. If a person thinks accurately in all eight of these areas, they'll have gone a good way towards being humble. These are key areas. This is a road map. Please think about these as a sum. So number one, we got into last time, how much you need God. This is the most important one. If you get all of them right, but you think you don't need God, that's a big problem. This one is the most important. And uh, we looked at a a few ways in which we need God, and we'll talk briefly about them this time. Number one, we need his fellowship. We were designed to have fellowship with God, and as Augustine, St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in him. Without fellowship with God, we can't have true fulfillment in life. We need his fellowship. We need him. The second way in which we need God is we need his empowerment. We need his empowerment to get the amount of success we should have in our day-to-day tasks, and especially in the things he's called us to do. No one's ever going to succeed in the Great Commission apart from God. Um. We need his empowerment for sanctification. No one's ever going to have any measure of success in sanctification apart from God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wish I could get a bit more deeper into this to spell it out a bit more practically because it is easy to think intellectually, yeah, I need God, everyone needs God. But then on a practical level, in your sanctification, you don't actually spend time praying for your sanctification and you don't like seek to rely on God. You think intellectually you need him, but you don't do anything about that. You just go on as if your efforts are, gonna, are the only thing you have. And, uh, and it's very easy to do that. But I, I did do a sermon um, pursuing the power of God. So if you would like to hear more about that, you can check that one out. The third way in which we need God is we need his wisdom. Wisdom. We need his wisdom for minor life decisions. We need his wisdom for major life decisions. We need his uh, wisdom on ethics. You know, without God's law, our ethical systems would be pretty messed up. We need God's wisdom in every area. Fourth way in which we need God, we need his provision. The annoying thing about these last two is it's so easy to miss how God does these. It's very easy to just go about your life with enough food, enough clothes, and a house to live in and just not at all realize that God had something to do with it. It's very easy to do. We'll talk about that a bit more later in today's message. The last thing, uh, area that I want to point out where we need God specifically is his protection. We need his protection in a number of ways, physically, spiritually. And again, like the one before this, it's very easy to just miss that, that we need this because you don't realize that God's already protecting you. One thing that I was glad we got to look at last time is um, God, we don't really see it, but God protects us from our own stupidity. There are dumb decisions that I would make that sometimes God prevents me from making. Sometimes he allows me to make them. And then hopefully I realize, hopefully I learn to be humble. But um, Mm -hmm. God does protect us from ourselves and from, you know, Satan and his demons. And in general, God protects his people. And we need God's protection. All right, so number two, area number two where we need to think of ourselves accurately. How much we need others. Um, So I have, again, five ways in which we need others that I want to look at. Number one, we need the prayers of others. So my first point for this is just like how much Paul asks for prayer. Paul clearly believed that he would be better off with the prayers of others. I think he believed he needed the prayers of others. We're going to look at five passages requesting the prayers of others. Uh, Romans 15, verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 1.11. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks to God on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Let's look at Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us, so the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. And Hebrews thirteen eighteen. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. So I think Paul was pretty convinced that he needed the prayers of others. And don't let yourself think that others praying for you isn't impactful. Paul frequently mentions how much he prays for others. He clearly believed it made a difference. You wouldn't spend hours of your day, uh, which I believe Paul did, um, praying for others if you didn't think it was worth it. Another area in which we need others. We need their fellowship. God didn't just create us for fellowship with himself. He created us for fellowship with others. If anyone who's gone without fellowship with others for a, a while knows this, really we all know this, like loneliness leads to depression. Just look at what happens to people when they get put in solitary confinement. There's people who literally go insane, and it's common. So we need others. We need their fellowship. Number three, we need their encouragement. Let's look at Hebrews uh, 3.13. In the NASB. But encourage one another every day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let's also look at Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. I like how it gets put in chapter 3. So that your hearts won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. Sin. We all still have sin in us. And sin is deceitful in all of us. But a countermeasure against that is the encouragement of others. Regularly fellowshipping with others who you're upfront and honest about your life, who you actually fellowship, who you can like sit on the front porch together and have a two-hour conversation and actually tell them what happens in your life, that's a real safeguard against uh, the deceitfulness of sin. If you don't believe it, there's plenty of people, plenty of um, you know ministers and whatnot who have fallen into sins that have basically wrecked their lives that could have been avoided if they would have had a brother or sister whom they regularly were encouraged by, whom they were accountable with, who they walked in the light with, and whose encouragement they listened to. Another area we need others. We need their counsel. Let's look at Proverbs 11, verse 14. Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Like, nobody even can learn a great amount by themselves. Like, any person who you know who knows a lot, I bet they learned most of what they know from other people, whether it come from books or YouTube or talking with people. If you had to um, have the amount of knowledge that only a person could have without the help of others, that would shrink a lot. We need the wisdom of others. We need the counsel of others. We need their advice when in making important decisions. Another area we need them, I decided to call it their teamwork. But people accomplish more together. Let's look at Ecclesiastes 4, uh, 9, and 10. Mm-hmm. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and does not have another to lift him up. You know, it, so when I get around to it, I enjoy listening to biographies. And one thing I've learned from listening to biographies there isn't like any successful person who just succeeded on their own. It can be tempting to not listen to biographies because the, the list of books I have to listen to is very long and I really like uh, instructional books. But it's good to listen to biographies and this is an, a principle that you'll see over and over if you study the lives of people who have like, exceeded in major ways in their lives. No one succeeds on their own. Most of them have support systems that no one else ever sees that are a big part of why they succeeded. Lastly, related to this, I want to look at Proverbs 18, verse 1. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. So, If nothing else, I hope that communicates the point that we need others. But realizing how much we need others should go a long way in helping us to stay humble because it makes it harder to brag to ourselves about how self-sufficient we are. It's really easy to be proud if you think you're pretty self-sufficient. You shouldn't think that you're pretty self-sufficient. So that was area number two. Let's look at area number three. How mature slash knowledgeable you are and how much you have to learn and grow. So this is a pretty important one, but it's also kind of complicated. I can't attempt to tell people from the pulpit how much they have to learn and grow because there's too many of you and it's different for everybody and that would take forever. Mm -hmm. We're not gonna do that. So instead, I'm gonna give some tips on how to try to think of yourself accurately in this area. But actually, before I do that, let's look at Proverbs 1 through 12, just to kinda think about the importance of thinking accurately about how much you have to learn and grow. Proverbs 1 through 12. Like a snow in summer or rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. Like a sparrow in its fitting, like a swallow in its flying, a curse that is causeless does not alight. A whip is for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and the rod is for the back of fools. Listen to all the bad things it says about fools. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Whoever sends a message by the hand of a fool cuts off his own feet and drinks violence. Like a lame man's legs which hang useless is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Like one who binds a stone in a sling, that makes it useless, is one who gives honor to a fool. Like a thorn that goes up into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Like an archer that wounds everyone is one who hires a passing fool or drunkard. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. That's pretty strong. It's not good to be a fool but you'd be better off being a fool who knows they're a fool than to be wise in your own eyes. So this is a key area, this is important. You wanna think accurately about how much you have to learn and grow. But anyways, tips on how to think accurately in this area. Number one, check yourself for personal bias. Uh, So bias will cause you to think you're more competent than you actually are, or more mature, or more knowledgeable. And the way bias works, people believe what they want to believe. And if you have a lot of desire to think well of yourself, in general, or in a specific area, you will probably see yourself with rose-colored glasses. This has happened to me a lot, this has happened to plenty of people I know, it's very easy to not even realize you're doing it. Personal bias. Ask yourself, am I really willing to admit if I'm terrible at something or if I'm not as good as I'd like to be? It can be hard to be willing to admit that. You need to examine your heart. You need to look for personal bias. Because personal bias is the biggest problem with not thinking accurately about how much you have to grow. Ask yourself if you really take the time to give yourself a detailed evaluation, a fair evaluation when thinking about how much you have to grow, or do you just do it really quickly and think to yourself, yeah, yeah, it's all right, I'm pretty good. Personal bias can go the negative way too. People can be biased towards thinking too lowly of themselves, and that is still something to look out for. Personal bias. Look out for personal bias. Number two, ask God to show you how much you have to grow and to give you insight, and ask him to make you level-headed. Prayer is one of the most effective ways we have to grow. James says if we need wisdom, we can ask of God and he will give it to us. If we need wisdom for thinking of ourselves accurately, which we do, because it's part of humility, let us ask of God. We should ask him to remove personal bias from our hearts. Number three, this one's very important. Make yourself willing to receive criticism. If you're not willing to receive criticism, or if you have a fairly hard time doing so, then it's quite likely you struggle with being biased and with being blind about your own maturity. So one thing that I can help think, one thing I think helps with this, ask someone else, um, someone close and someone who's unbiased if you are willing to receive criticism because it can be easy if you're biased to think oh i i receive criticism just fine Mm -hmm. so if you're going to do this think hard about who you're going to ask make sure they're a person you trust because after you ask them whatever they tell you i'd encourage you to believe it because if if you have a heart if you ask someone do I receive criticism okay? And they say, no, you're not good at receiving criticism. And they're like, I can't believe they said that about me. Then (laughs) that's that's not good. That probably proves the point. So I would encourage you to find a trusted person. Your disciple would be good. Ask them if you receive criticism well and believe them. I want to talk a little bit about what receiving criticism looks like. If you are willing to take a hard and honest look at yourself and consider whether or not the other person has a point, that's what receiving criticism is. Everyone gets criticism, but there's a difference between getting it, as in being told, and receiving it. Receiving it has to do with being open towards it. It's about considering whether or not the other person has a point taking a hard and honest look being willing to be real honest with yourself and consider whether or not they have a point i also want to take a look at what criticism isn't Critic- what receiving it isn't it's not believing everything you're told i love proverbs 14 verse 15. the naive believes everything but the sensible person considers his steps so proverbs take, talks a lot about listening to rebuke and receiving criticism. But that can't mean just believing everything you're told. It's about being honest about it. It's about considering whether or not they have a point. Even if they don't communicate like they should, even if they're harsh when they give criticism, it's about considering whether or not they have a point. I would say also, if you assume whenever anybody criticizes you that they're being mean-spirited, you probably have a problem with receiving criticism. Number four that I think uh, is important. Um, Watch out for thinking that you're more gifted or have more potential than others. Even though this could in theory be the case, most people who think this are wrong and you're probably not different. I think that's helpful when trying to think of yourself accurately and how mature you are and how much you have to grow. Number five, try to get a big picture view of how much there is to learn in various areas that you are pursuing. I talked about this in another sermon I did called A Biblical View of Our Need for Knowledge. It is very helpful to have a big picture of what you need to learn you know what the guy who's wise in his own eyes doesn't know? He doesn't know what he needs to learn. Amen. Knowing what you need to learn is very helpful. And thanks to the internet, it's very easy to obtain. Number six ask others where they think you should grow, where they think you could grow, especially your disciple. One's very helpful. And number seven, when thinking about your sanctification, compare yourself to Christ, not to others. I mean, I could wake up today and feel pretty good. I'm not Hitler. I didn't kill thousands of people. But the standard isn't Hitler. The standard is Christ. There's plenty of, you know, we could all feel good about ourselves and like we're really making growth if we compare ourselves to others. Don't compare yourself to others. Compare yourself to Christ. That's thinking accurately. Mm -hmm. And this is very valuable knowledge to have because not only will knowing how much you have to learn and specifically what you have to learn help you avoid being proud, but it makes it easier to grow because you know what to work on next. It's always important to know what you need to know to know what you need to study, to know what you need to pursue. Number four of the areas we need to think accurately in, how important you are. So importance is relative slash relational, but there are two areas that I want to look at. How important you are to God and how important you are uh, in the king- to the kingdom of God. So number one, how important you are to God. Everyone is equally important before God. No one is more important or less important. And when we get away from that, that's getting towards pride. Everyone is equally important to God. You should always know in your heart, you are not more important than anybody else to God. You are not less important than anybody else. Uh, another area I want to look at, how important you are to God's kingdom. Uh, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians twelve fifteen through 26. Because it is very relevant to this discussion. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So, as we see in this passage, there's two errors we can have when thinking about, you know, how important our role is in the kingdom of God. We can think it's more important than it is, and we can think it's less important than it is. We can think we're all that and we don't need other people, and, you know, the kingdom of God is going to advance because we're here. And, um, or we can think that, you know, our contribution is worthless and why bother? We don't have anything to offer. But both of those are wrong. And so the best thing to believe, what the passage says. That's, that's the best way to think accurately about this. And the passage says that everyone, everyone, has an important role in the church. And that prevents both errors. Because if you're tempted to think higher of your role in the church than you ought, if you believe everyone has an important role, you realize everyone else has an important role. Mm -hmm. So that will help you stay humble. And, um, And if you believe your role is not important, but then you realize everyone's role is important, guess what? You're part of everyone. Your role is important. It's guaranteed by God. The scriptures say it. You can't deny it. To do so is a lie and is to mock God. Period. I think this passage could also somewhat be applied to our thinking about local churches, because small churches make up the body. Don't think that your church is more important than it is. Every local church has an important role. This is another area we need to look for personal bias in. Personal bias is something we struggle with a lot, and the tips I mentioned before can be helpful for cutting out personal bias in any area. But personal bias is one of the biggest causes of pride in the human heart that there is. Area number five we need to think accurately about. How sinful we are. This is a good one. <laughs> all right, let's look at First John 1 verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That's just a bit of an introduction to the topic at large. Um, we all have sin, and believe me, it is more than just a little. We would do well to be accurately aware of how sinful we are. So So I would like to break this down into two areas. There's two areas that we need to know accurately. Number one, how prone to sin we are. Um, We are all prone to sin and we need to be real about it. We need to see how prone to sin we are. I think another important area of this is to realize how much we would sin against God were it not for his grace. God holds us back from our own depravity by his grace. God's common grace applies to non-believers where he even holds non-believers back from being as sinful as they otherwise would be. If you struggle with exalting yourself, it would do you well to think about how prone to sinning you are. Secondly, the second area I want to break this down into is how much we actually have sinned against God. Because it adds up, and it's a lot. And it's, it's helpful to think about because it keeps us from exalting ourselves. Let's take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 7. God speaking to Israel Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness Remember and do not forget from the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place you have been rebellious against the Lord It does us well to remember our sin We don't want to meditate on it too much, and we'll get to that in a second, but it does us well to remember it. God told Israel as a command, remember and do not forget how you've sinned against me. It wasn't that he wanted them to struggle with condemnation. He wanted them to be humble. And he knew that they were going to struggle with pride, as we can see they did, and, um, you know, they didn't handle it very well. So there's two ways we can get this wrong. Uh, We can think that we're less sinful than we are. We can think that we haven't sinned very much or that we're not prone to sin or that it's no big deal. And we can also think too much of our own sinfulness. So sinfulness, our sin and our sinfulness, is always held in tension against the grace of God. So thinking too much of your own sinfulness also happens when you think too little of God's grace. You know, you can think the world over of your own sinfulness, but if you think that much and more of God's grace, then you're probably right. How much should you think of your own sinfulness? Well, it definitely shouldn't be more than you think of God's grace. God's grace is greater than our sin. It's just something to remember. How much you think of your own sinfulness is always held in tension against what you think about the grace of God. Remember that. All right, area number six we need to think accurately in. Uh, how much we deserve. This one's easy. You deserve absolutely nothing. And to think anything else is totally against Scripture. Pride and entitlement are very connected. And entitlement's a big prop. We all deserve absolutely nothing. This point can be made with two verses. Let's turn to Romans 6:23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, we've all sinned and we all deserve death. So, You know, not going very well for how much we deserve. And one may say, but what about all the good things people do? They sin, but they also do good things. Well, let's look at Isaiah 64, verse 6 in the NASB. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Not just some, the some. The sum of our righteous deeds. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us withered like a leaf, and our wrongdoings like the wind take us away. We all deserve nothing but God's punishment. And for God to pour his wrath out on us. And any good thing that happens to you, which there will be plenty, happens because the blood of Christ spilled for you. Realizing this is not just part of thinking accurately, but it helps us to be humble because it keeps us from exalting ourselves. Next time you're struggling with exalting yourself, or like, man, I did good at that test. Um, and you start realizing that you're struggling with thinking I'm all that. Just remember, it's God's grace that I did well. I didn't deserve to do well. Amen. I didn't deserve to be able to take the test at all. Because we don't deserve anything but the wrath of God. So this is another one you can take the wrong way. Don't take this the wrong way. So just because we deserve nothing but God's punishment, that doesn't mean that God is wrong to give us good things. Nor does it mean that he doesn't want to. God wants to give us good things, and he has rights to do so because he has paid for them. Christ imputed perfect righteousness to us. So we legally, even though we don't deserve it, We legally don't just have a neutral standing. We have the highest positive standing possible before God. God looks at us and doesn't see our sin which deserves death. He sees all of Christ's good deeds that Christ did and sees an abundance of merit. He sees Christ's merit, which is abundant positive merit. So, although we deserve nothing, that doesn't mean God should give us bad things. God is right to give us good things because he applied the blood of Christ to his people. Number two, this does not mean that it is right for others to treat you unjustly or that you should punish yourself. We might deserve nothing but punishment, but God is the one who carries out justice. He may choose to delegate it to the government, but only God can carry out justice. It doesn't matter if everybody deserves bad. That doesn't give you the right to do bad things to other people. And it doesn't give other people the right to do bad things to you. Only God can carry out justice. All right, number 7 we I'll try to hurry up since we've got about ten minutes left. Number seven, why you've succeeded. Let's take a look at Deuteronomy 8, 10 through 18. This is God speaking to Israel. When you have eaten your fill, be sure to praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. But at that time, be careful. Beware that in your plenty you do not forget the Lord your God and disobey his commands, regulations, and decrees that I am giving you today. For when you have become full and prosperous and have built fine homes to live in, and your flocks and your herds have become very large and your silver and gold has multiplied along with everything else, be careful. Do not become proud at that time and forget the Lord your God who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. Do not forget that he led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions where it was hot and dry. He gave you water from the rock he fed you with manna in the wilderness, a food unknown to your ancestors. He did this to humble you and to test you for your own good. He did all this so you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth by my own strength and my energy. Remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you power to be successful in order to fulfill the covenant he confirmed to your ancestors with this oath. This is very important, and this is another one that's very easy to get wrong. Um, It's easy to attribute too much of your own success to your own abilities and efforts. They do indeed make a difference. People who say, like, everything, we don't, we as Christians are not fatalistic. We don't believe um, that the reason we succeeded is divorced from our efforts, and it's just fate. Your efforts definitely have something to do with it. But it's not just that. God has a big part in it. Especially, so, God rescued Israel from Egypt. Were it not for that, they wouldn't have achieved anything they achieved. They would still be slaves. Do slaves have nice houses and a lot of money and large flocks? No. God rescued us from Egypt and that he rescued us from our sins. We were slaves to sin. When a person is set free from being a slave to sin, they achieve a lot more than they otherwise would. I wouldn't have gotten a degree if I had still gone on living the way I wanted to before God got a hold of my life. I would have never done I would have continued on the trajectory I was on, which was just to play skateboards and play video games and skateboard, and I would have just become broke and done nothing and lived in my parents' basement until I was 30. It's good for me to remember it's because of God that that's not where I am now. We need to see God's work in our own success. And it needs to not be just some abstract, well, yeah, it's because of God, because everything's from God. It needs to be more practical than that. So it's very important we acknowledge God in our success. It's also important we acknowledge others in our success. Nobody succeeds to any good amount on their own without the help of others. It's very important that we realize that. That will go a long way in helping us stay humble. And not just that, but I think when we succeed, we should realize that anyone else could do it too. Like. This is something that helps me when I get tempted to like exalt myself over things that are going well in my life. Anybody else could have done it. Anybody. Anything that enabled me to succeed, I, anyone else could get. There isn't any, most of what any of us accomplish could have been done by anyone else who would have put as much time into it as we did. You are not unique in your achievements are not special. <laughs> Another aspect of this thinking accurately about why we've succeeded is to think about, you know, why you failed in various things. Namely, don't go blaming others for your fail That's an aspect of pride. If everything wrong in your life is somebody else's fault, you struggle with pride. Let's look at the last area to think of yourself accurately in. Not thinking too lowly of yourself. This one's an important one. Before we started this, we talked about how pride is related to condemnation. Don't think too lowly of yourself. There's four ways a lot of people think too lowly of themselves or that we all get tempted to think too lowly of ourselves. Number one, I'm unimportant. God loves you and considers you important. That guarantees... That you're important. God isn't wrong about anything. Another one. I'm unredeemable. Or I'm too sinful for God. Again, that's thinking too highly of your own sin. And more importantly, too little of God. If God is so little as to be defeated by your sin, that just doesn't sound right. He's God. You're you. God's greater than your sin. Another one we all tend to tempt to be struggling with. I'm not likable. I hit on this pretty well in this mini-series I did, dealing with your own struggles about the church's love for you. If you struggle with this, please re-listen to that. The last one, I'm useless. None of God's children are useless. Period. If you think so, that means you focus more on yourself than you do on God. Even if you were totally bedridden and couldn't do anything, you can pray. And we all know prayer has a lot of power to accomplish things, to bless others and to accomplish things for God's kingdom. None of God's children are useless. All right, so in conclusion, can we go to yeah, nope, uh, can we go back to that list? Yes. So this is a very helpful list, these eight areas to think of yourself accurately If people thought accurately in all eight of these areas, that would be very helpful towards being humble. This is a roadmap. Um, I would say to take notes, but it, the outline is in your bulletin. But think about it. Use this as a roadmap. This is a roadmap. Um, so next week, oh, next week will be fun. We're going to talk about how to spot pride in your own heart. And if we get past that in one week, then we're going to talk about some helpful tips, helpful tips for being humble and staying humble. I think being humble might be easier than staying humble. But uh, we have a communion meditation. Let's turn to Philippians 2, 3 through 11. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, So I have three points to take from this passage for this meditation. Number one, the humility of Christ. Christ was more humble than any of us could ever be and he had true humility. He didn't think uh, super lowly of himself, he thought he was God and he was right. Humility isn't about thinking lowly of yourself, it's about thinking accurately. But Christ's humility was that he served others Christ was the most important being ever and he died for his enemies to give them more good than can be humanly imagined or comprehended. To give them eternally growing pleasure without end. People who hated him and who would often continue to hate him after he died for them who would continue to sin against him after receiving salvation, as we all do. Christ is humble, and he loves us that much that he gladly chose to die for us. That is Christ's humility. Point number two, God rewards humility. Christ is more humble than any person ever could be because he stepped down more than any person ever could. And the Father rewards him with higher honor than anyone else will ever have. At the name of Jesus, every tongue will bow. I mean, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And point number three, in communion, not only do we thankfully acknowledge his saving us and his grace, but we look forward to his consummate victory. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When we take the bread and drink the cup, we remember his death but we look forward to that day. We drink to the fulfillment of his victory, the full fulfillment. Please come.